Hey, hey, Cassandra, we're uh, we're about to record. You should sit down. Norman. Get... Y- yes. What do your elf eyes see? Uh, um, our our mics. No, no, you're supposed to say they're taking the podcast to Isengard. We, we've 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 been there all, several times yeah, but already. No, like for reals this time. <laughs> what do you, what do you what do you mean for reals this time? Well, you know the trees and the orcs and the 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 wizard and we're we're taking the podcast. To Isengard. Will there be stupid fat hobbits? Yes. Okay, I'm in. Oh, okay. That was easy. <laughs> I was. I had this whole sales pitch that you know there's potatoes, and you, you know, gotta boil them, <laughs> mash them, <laughs> stick them in a stew. There, there were also gonna be you know some crunchable horses. Um, we're back. <laughs> With season two, our yes. continuing coverage of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. This time we're talking about Two Towers. Join us on Dueling Genre every Monday through Friday to talk about Lord of the Rings one minute at a time. We're from Lord of the Rings Minute. Leave now and And never come back. No, please come back. (laughs) Dueling Genre. And welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Sherlock Holmes from the short story, The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle. And joining the discussion is first-time guest, Brittany Broyles. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you. We are very glad to have you on, and particularly as we are finally tackling Sherlock Holmes on the Protagonist Podcast. This is a character we've wanted to get to since we launched the podcast. Uh, and through a family connection of my brother and your grad school, I know that you are an expert in Sherlock Holmes. Is that correct? I have spent hours and hours studying the character. I'm surprised that you guys uh, are waiting so late to get one of the most adapted characters. In, in a lot of ways, it was a, a question of how do we do a Sherlock Holmes episode uh, for a while. There's a lot of material. Yeah, like just doing a special and talking about Sherlock Holmes, like the idea and our cultural consciousness. Uh, but then um, this year we decided we do the one kind of Christmas themed Sherlock episode uh, or story from the Arthur Conan Doyle canon uh, and slip him into our December releases. So, Brittany, can you uh, share with our audience what uh, what has led to you to be, uh, you know, uh, our go to source for Sherlock Sherlock knowledge here? Sure. Um, I'll try and keep it as brief as possible. There's a lot of uh, reasons why he's interesting to to study. Um, but during my master's program, I took a, a really cool class called um, Victorian Pop Culture. And we studied like Penny Dreadfuls and, you know, all of the mystique behind like the Ripper murders. Um, and so we we studied like the top 10 favorite Sherlock Holmes stories. And that's how I really uh, first had access to the original Conan Doyle stories. Um, of course, I'd seen adaptations and, and references throughout everything. Um, but that led me later on when I was thinking about dissertation topics back to him because he kept popping up everywhere. You know, the Robert Downey Jr. movies, um, Sherlock on BBC, 
elementary um, and you can't really watch a crime procedural nowadays without hearing some reference to Sherlock Holmes. So uh, I thought this would be a great character to kind of look at and why we keep coming back to him. Um, And I really thought he would be a good character to kind of critique enlightenment thinking and rationality. But as I got more into it, you know, uh, that became more complicated, much more complicated, especially <laughs> when you dig into the to the original Doyle stories, because he also throws a lot of romanticism in there and an emotion becomes a little bit trickier. So you literally uh, have a PhD studying Sherlock Holmes here. <laughs> <laughs> I do. And, and it sounds kind of kind of like a crazy thing but when you when you start digging into it you really see him how he's proliferated throughout like out all of culture um all different kinds of things all different genres you know there's always those witty asides like well aren't you a a sherlock or you know um something of to of that nature so i'm like why has he become so fascinating to so many different genres and people and media forms my phd is studying race and gender in the x-men comic books so covering a pop culture topic for an advanced degree is then i don't have to explain to you you know why pop culture is so fascinating but also so meaningful um we work out what's going on in in the cultural kind of imagination through our pop culture heroes Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's there's lots of uh, kind of simultaneous uh, reflection and also guidance for for culture that happens with the entertainment that we choose to consume. So I am right there with cultural mister. Cultural myths are very important to understanding not only like the culture we're in, but also where we've come and maybe where we're going to. Now, I assume most of our listeners are familiar with Sherlock Holmes, but they may not be familiar with the adventure of the Blue Carbuncle. Uh, This is one of the 56 Sherlock Holmes short stories that was written by Arthur Conan Doyle, and it was originally published in January uh, 1882. I wrote down 1982 in uh, in the script. I think it was 1892. 1892. Oh, okay. I inverted those two numbers. Yeah, yeah. okay. So 1892. (laughs) And this tells the story of Sherlock Holmes solving a mystery surrounding a Christmas goose and a giant gemstone called the Blue Carbuncle. And... uh, as far as cultural penetration, it is no Hound of the Baskervilles when it comes to the Sherlock Holmes canon. Do you remember your first exposure to Sherlock Holmes? So you said you said it was in grad school that you kind of like got into the Arthur Conan Doyle original uh, short stories, and that's led you into this field of study. But do you remember just do you have a, a consciousness of when you became aware of Sherlock Holmes at all? Honestly, I think it was uh, the Great Mouse Detective. Have you seen that movie? I have. That's the uh, the Disney 1980s. I can't remember the year. Andrew, do you <laughs> yes. know off the top of your head? Our, our producer, Andrew, uh, has... I'm going to say 87. Yeah, something There's like a podcast that. podcast on Disney something... animated movies. So. But I'll also double check. I, it's on Disney Plus, I think, which, you know, they just released Disney Plus. So I think it's on there. But yeah. Um, and it's obviously a Hound of the Baskervilles adaptation but i think that's the first exposure i had to kind of the character i was wrong it was 86 86. so close andrew (laughs) um i similarly for me the one that i can remember most distinctly of being aware that this was something sherlock holmes ish and i'm sure i must have heard the name before that but it's a a disney cartoon from the um chippendale rescue rangers series that did a hound of the baskervilles 
uh, style story. And I think there's some references to Sherlock Holmes uh, in that. Like, that's the first thing I can remember that is clearly a Sherlock Holmes story. Uh, but it, he's so permeates our culture that there's I, no way I hadn't heard his name before that as well. Um, some trivia about Sherlock Holmes. And I will just say there is too much for one episode. <laughs> this can be pretty light version of dipping into Sherlock Holmes trivia. And we may just have to circle back to this character in a future episode, but Sherlock Holmes first appeared in the 1887 novel, a study in Scarlet Uh, between then and 1927, Arthur Conan Doyle would write four novels and 56 short stories that featured the character. Uh, Sherlock Holmes holds the Guinness world record for most portrayed movie character in history. And due to his popularity, there have been, I think literally thousands of tales written by other authors uh, during and after Doyle's life. Uh, And this is like both what we would call fan fiction stuff today, but even during Conan Doyle's lifetime, some other writers were starting to like do versions of Sherlock Holmes and publishing them and trying to profit off the, the interest in this character. And now that Sherlock Holmes is in the public domain, there are, so many, <laughs> so many new versions that are being and put out Holmes there. himself is an adaptation of several characters that had come before as well. Yes, yeah, uh, like I've Pose got some notes on he, some of those. He pulled yeah. a lot from there. Yeah, yeah, Pose uh, Auguste Dupin, uh, the Doctor Joseph Bell, for whom Doyle worked at one point, was uh, right. a, apparently notable for doing kind of a parlor trick of asking uh, on like the first day of class, asking a student to come up and he would point out uh, things about his dress or, and and reveal uh, insights that he had into like what he'd been doing that day or where he came from based on, on, you know, how they spoke or anything like that. The, you know, kind of what, or the mud on their shoes. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard this referred to uh, the first time I heard, I saw this term. It was, um, I, I know it was in an article on, Grantland, a a now no longer with us website that um, a lot of those writers now work for the Ringer, but they were reviewing a new procedural and they referred to the lead character as Sherlocking, uh, um, meaning that they they did one of those scenes where he just looks for a second and the camera zooms in on a few details and then the character revealed some stuff <laughs> that everyone else had missed, um, and so Joseph Bell kind of you know was a potentially for Sherlock Holmes or, or for uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, the first that he saw do what became what, what we might now call Sherlocking um, an individual. Um, while Sherlock Holmes is one of the most adapted or probably the most adapted character in history, the adventure of the blue carbuncle is not one of the most adapted stories from Sherlock Holmes. It was adapted for American radio with Basil Rathbone uh, and Nigel Bruce. And it was adapted four times by BBC radio, Peter Cushing, who mm, our, our audiences may know as grand Moff Tarkin from star Wars. He played Sherlock Holmes in a BBC television adaptation of the blue carbuncle. Um, there was a Belarus film adaptation in 1979, another BBC television version in 84. And also the cartoon Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century adapted the story in 1999. But that was about it for direct adaptations of the story that I could find um, listed on Wikipedia or a couple other uh, places that I had looked around for. Um, so it's, it, you know, it has been adapted. I'm sure every one of those short stories has been adapted, but um, there are others that you see much more frequently. Have you ever seen Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century? I've come across it in my research, but I haven't actually seen it. Yeah, I haven't seen it. It uh, sounded interesting. because I'm like, really? That What is that show? It was a Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah. And apparently it involved. I, I saw a little bit of it. Well, I, I thought it was. Would this be. It did not hold me. <laughs> would this be like a future like version of Sherlock Holmes? You know, like his great, 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 great grandchild. No, apparently they brought 
they reanimated Sherlock Holmes or brought him out. Somehow it's our Sherlock, you know, the, the Victorian era Sherlock Holmes now lives in the 22nd century in this cartoon. They did like a Captain America on him. He was frozen or something. Ah, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> the Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle, I did see noted in a couple places when I was looking up some information as uh, containing what is considered one of Doyle's biggest mistakes in any Sherlock story. And I will talk about that after I do the long summary of what that mistake is though, as you know, Brittany, when you start to dig into Sherlock Holmes stories and you try and make sense of it all, it's like, there's so many contradictions in terms of timeline and when Watson is married and, and when his wife dies and like, like you can't really put Arthur Conan Doyle's um, stories into a direct timeline that makes sense it's it gets you too can't and people quickly. have tried so many people have tried okay we're, we're not getting into it but there's like whole societies built around trying to make sense there of are <laughs> these, these there are absolutely like are multi-generational societies that all when they get together they just try to make sense of how this puzzle of sherlock holmes life would fit according to what we have in the arthur conan doyle stories <laughs> yeah if you think your fandom of sherlock holmes is deep i would just say there's probably other people who have engaged with it a lot more out there in the world listeners. Uh, Cause uh, when, when you start to research the the different societies, like the, what is it? Baker street Irregulars is one of them. And mm-hmm. uh, Oh, what's the other, what's the other one? But there's just a couple of these, where, when you start to like learn about them, you're like, that is commitment to a fandom to a degree that like we, we often uh, like think of like sports fanatics or like the comic-con crowd, uh, like those who cosplay is like, this is committed fandom, you know, uh, but but it turns out Sherlock Holmes fandom maybe is one of the deepest of all the fandoms. That's a very true statement, and it's mind-boggling <laughs> when you when you really start to research it and, and figure out you know what all they're discussing and writing about. But, for but somehow it doesn't like, it, it doesn't come up when people talk about fanatics. Like Sherlock Holmes is like like it's it's not one of the the fandoms that gets referenced. It's the normal it, reaction to Sherlock Holmes I th- I think is is to be that upset. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I I don't know why, but it it is true. I mean, and we're we're creating a new generation of those fans too, I think. Oh yeah, with the, with like you said the BBC version and the revival uh, yeah. of him, you know, being set in modern day. Yeah. Yeah, it's in some ways like the idea of Sherlock Holmes is becoming a bit like um, Shakespeare, where like, you know, every high school or when you go to a Shakespeare festival, you assume some of the plays are going to be like, well, we're taking the Shakespeare story and we're putting it in a different setting. And now we're going to see what happens when we do that. And that's kind of becoming what we do with Sherlock Holmes, whereas for a very long time, it was always we're adapting Victorian Sherlock Holmes and it's Victorian. And that's that's all it is. I agree. I think think that you're seeing a move from the setting and and kind of the trappings of Holmes into more of like the character and his method. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. Um, But let's uh, uh, we we could get lost down this rabbit hole (laughs) if we keep going down it. So why don't we jump over to the uh, discussion of the blue carbuncle. But before we get to that full summary, uh, we want to thank everyone who has downloaded this episode and for listening. We especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and give monthly updates on our fantasy box office and all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss now on to the full summary of the adventure of the blue carbuncle 
a priceless gem called the Blue Carbuncle has been stolen from a countess, and John Horner has been arrested for the crime despite his protestations of innocence. A man named Peterson brings Sherlock Holmes a Christmas goose and a hat. Uh, and what happened is that Peterson saw a man uh, being accosted by street toughs. These these hooligans uh, attacked this man, and the man dropped his hat and the goose. Uh, but Peterson recovered them, and he hopes that Sherlock Holmes will figure out who they belong to. And the beginning steps of that are easy, as the goose has a tag on it with the name Henry Baker. Uh, but there are too many Henry Bakers to track down the right one. Noting that the goose is likely to spoil, Sherlock tells Peterson to take it home and enjoy it. And then the next day, Peterson returns to Sherlock and reveals that he discovered the missing blue carbuncle in the goose's crop. Now, feeling the need to uh, find this Henry Baker, Sherlock, Sherlock's the hat. So he, he looks closely at the hat to deduce many aspects of the owner's appearance and his life, though I will note that he does lean a touch into craniometry here. So let's not put too much faith into all of Sherlock's deductions and what he takes away from looking at this man's hat. However, he does get enough information that they can place an ad specifically looking for a Henry ba Baker who matches uh, the, the description that Sherlock is able to conjure out of just looking at this man's hat. And when Henry Baker responds to the ad and comes by, Sherlock reveals that they have his hat, but the goose had been eaten. Uh, however, Sherlock has a replacement goose for him, and Henry Baker happily accepts this replacement goose, and this reveals that he did not know anything about the blue carbuncle. Uh, Henry Baker tells Sherlock and Watson that he had gotten the goose originally from a pub called the Alpha Inn, and we track Sherlock and Watson and track down some clues, and they follow from the Alpha Inn to a dealer of geese who is in the area called Covent Garden, and there the owner is sick of people coming around and asking about geese, but Sherlock tricks him into revealing that the goose was grown by Mrs. Oakshot. Now, Sherlock and Watson run into a man named James Ryder, who is also looking into geese from Mrs. Oakshot. And Sherlock and Watson believe they now have their man who would know how the blue carbuncle uh, was in this Christmas goose. They pressure Ryder and they hint that they know all about the blue carbuncle and he cracks very easily. He reveals that his accomplice, uh, accomplice in this crime was the Countess's maid. She stole the gem and helped to frame John Horner for the crime. Uh, but after James Ryder, the man that they have in, uh, with them, after he had the blue carbuncle with him, he got nervous that he was going to be caught with it. So he went to his sister uh, and his sister had promised that he was going to get a Christmas goose. So he made a plan to feed the blue carbuncle to one of the geese and then claim it as his Christmas goose. However, after he fed the jewel to one of the geese, it re-entered the flock and he couldn't track down which one had it. And it got sold. Now, uh, after being confronted by Sherlock and Watson, uh, Ryder is obviously distraught by his crimes. So Sherlock lets him go, believing that he is so upset he will never commit a crime again. Whereas if he spent seven years in jail, that would turn him into a hardened criminal. And Sherlock also believes that the case against John Horner is just going to fall apart now that Ryder and his accomplices' fake testimony that framed him are going, well, they're not going to happen. They're not going to come to court to give their fake testimony that had framed James Horner. And that is the end of the story. Sherlock lets the man go free for Christmas. The end. So, Brittany, as a Sherlock Holmes expert, what are your thoughts on The Avenger of the Blue Carbuncle? Well, um, I actually do talk about this story um, in relationship to a couple of different things in my dissertation. Um, the main thing is the way that he, of course, as you said, let's uh writer go at the end of the story that's kind of the biggest thing about that sets this story apart from all of the other ones i was trying to think of another example where this happens 
Um, but I couldn't off the top I, I of my head. I know there's another one where um, there's um, like they don't catch the murderer, and then Sherlock Holmes is kind of just like, like oh well, <laughs> like <laughs> oh well, yeah. I I do remember that 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 happens at one point, and then sometimes they think there's a crime that's been committed, and then it winds up that there actually wasn't. So there there's instances of that too, where it's like, well, they, they didn't really do anything legally wrong. Um, so sometimes he'll let people off. Like there's one time where I think someone didn't register that someone had died right away. And so they've like got this corpse that everybody thinks is still alive that they've hidden away somewhere. Um, so, so there's, there's little exceptions like that, but this one is really the most notice noticeable one for where he's like, okay, you're clearly guilty. You've committed a theft, but the police don't know. So I'm not going to tell them. Yeah, Brittany, this this story really does set Sherlock Holmes outside of like the established justice system. And in the Arthur Conan Doyle stories, he does refer to himself as a consulting detective. I think sometimes we think that's a like a modern interpretation of who Sherlock Holmes was, but no, that's that's exactly what he was. He wasn't part of the police force. He wasn't an official detective or anything. Uh, and, and the way that this story ends with him just kind of saying it would be better for this man to not get caught up in the criminal justice system. Uh, it would it would actually make him a better person to not be caught up in the criminal justice system. It, it is such a departure from uh, so, uh, both the other Arthur Conan Doyle stories, but also I think our our larger like cultural conception of Sherlock Holmes, who's like Amanda always driven to always you know get get the bad guy to always capture the villain. And this is one instance uh, where he just kind of looks the other way. Absolutely. I mean, there's. Uh... I think it's Julian Simmons in his um, history of the detective fiction genre talks about how, um, you know, and this is kind of an oversimplification, but basically you can look at detective fiction or um, crime procedurals on TV, police procedurals, and you can really define two main strands. There's the ones that support um, the justice system. And, you know, uh, offer you reassurances in the conclusion. And then there's the kind that actually question the system um, and, you know, talk about how these crimes in part are happening because of the way society is structured or, you know, the, the larger system at play. And so it's really kind of critical of that system in some ways. And I think that one of the most interesting things about, you know, all of Doyle's stories, when you look at them as a whole, is that you can't really put Sherlock in one or the other category. Um, and I think that's, to me, that's one of the reasons why he's not only endured for so long, but he's also spawned all of these different versions of himself, because you can read what you want into the stories by looking at all of these inconsistencies, if you will. Yeah, um, so like the the final a uh, little monologue that happens in this story. Sherlock Holmes says, I suppose I am commuting a felony, but it is just possible that I am saving a soul. This fellow will not go wrong again. He is too terribly frightened. Send him to jail now and you make him a jailbird for life. Besides, it is the season of forgiveness. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, but, like that is actually um, somewhat, like you said, a, a condemnation of the criminal justice system in that conclusion. Now right. there are plenty of other Arthur Conan Doyle authored Sherlock Holmes stories, where it is all about capturing the man and letting justice be served. Um, but this one, like you said, it kind of stands out for this conclusion. Absolutely. And and it's interesting, too, because 
a lot of times he sides with the higher classes and here he's going with you know the little guy he's not supporting the countess and she's not actually his client which is interesting here too because a lot of times like a scandal in bohemia or at the hound of the baskervilles you have someone from the the wealthy aristocratic class coming and enlisting holmes to help them and here you know it's the police commissioner kind of brings the case his way and he actually winds up siding with the the lower class person who is actually the criminal so that also makes it interesting and make it stand out Yes. Oh, and I, I mentioned in the trivia that this one gets pointed out as having the largest error in a Sherlock Holmes story. And it is actually not about like the chronology of Sherlock Holmes or, or Watson or any of that. It is the fact that a major plot point is about the goose's crop holding the carbuncle. And the error is that unlike some other birds, geese do not have crops. <laughs> so the uh, the physiological mechanics of the story don't hold up. Although <laughs> I have the Norton edition, which is annotated with Leslie Leslie Klinger's uh, uh-huh. notes and edits, and they said that one possible explanation for that is that it wasn't supposed to be crop, but it was actually a typographical error that was supposed to be an A instead of an O. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so it could be that they found the carbuncle, you know. That way. I don't think that that holds up because he uh, <laughs> when he when he brings the uh, the replacement goose he, I, he in the short story he says the crop and the other innards are over there I don't think he'd be saying the the <laughs> you don't think he brought the the crap with him <laughs> yeah uh, yeah but the, the, it's, it's um, a possible explanation but it doesn't sound like Doyle to me to have something no. like that in the story yeah that that feels outside of the Victorian, or at least Doyle's Victorian literature, I should say. <laughs> when you get into the petty dreadfuls, I'm sure you could have found that kind of content. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, do you think there's anything that is like quintessentially Sherlock in this particular short story? Besides, like, like the most interesting thing is actually one of those like gray areas for Sherlock Holmes. But is there anything that like for you is like this is a you know a, a definitive aspect of Sherlock Holmes? Um, the newspapers, um, the use of the newspapers is something that I talk about at great length. Um, it shows up in like forty three of the sixty different stories. Um, which is an insane amount. So you have to kind of pay attention to that. But he directly, Doyle will directly, you know, have Sherlock or Watson or some other character quote from the newspapers. Um, There's four stories where Holmes actually lures someone in using a newspaper ad. Um, This story, the Naval Treaty, the Sign of Four, and the study, uh, Study in Scarlet. So that's a major element um and there's a lot that can be said about that but one of the main thing is you know that that sherlock keeps up with what's going on especially certain aspects of the newspaper he he always reads including the agony columns which is where he places his ad so that's a huge one yeah um and then also um what he does with the hat you know that is i i think the, the most iconic yeah. part of of sherlock holmes is like the the taking in with a glance and and uh like how does he put it often like you see but you don't understand or you know you know the that these clues are there for anyone who would be willing to see them and and in a way this is like 
heading towards like uh, some of the, the the superhero literature that comes out of the same kind of pop culture uh entertainment um you know like a, a generation later uh you know the 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 idea of like these these superhumans who have these talents beyond normal normal men and the way sherlock holmes abilities gets presented it does feel at times like superhuman and watson's always saying he's like ah that, that you know no one could do what you do sherlock um you know watson as as the faithful cheerleader of sherlock holmes is always um you know there to remind the reader that even if Sherlock Holmes says this is simple, it absolutely is not. And uh, no one else can do what Sherlock Holmes does. Right. And there's actually a whole section of books um, dedicated to like, how can you th- think like Sherlock? How to how to think like Sherlock Holmes? And there there's a ton of books like that, like self-help books that are out there about how to use his, his reasoning skills. And I will say it, it generally is... Um, there's a logic to what gets laid out by Conan Doyle and also how the uh, various adaptations like choose to present this. There's, there always is a logic there, but at the same time it does strain credulity as well. (laughs) Well, you know, I think that the interesting thing is a lot of times we read it and we don't think about like, well, maybe that inference was wrong. You know, what, what are the other possibilities that it could have been? And, and, there's a couple of adaptations that do kind of draw attention to that. Like uh, I'm thinking in Sherlock, he makes some assumptions about when he's looking at Watson's watch in one of them mm-hmm. and doesn't realize that he, his sister is actually a lesbian. And so that's why, you know, his whole thing falls apart, but they do actually kind of poke fun at that supernatural power that he, that he seems to, to have to make all of these guesses and always be correct. Um. What do you think it is about Sherlock Holmes as a character that has made him that most adapted character? Like, I, there, I, as far as I can tell, of looking at the history of, of mass entertainment and glancing into the future, we're never going to be without a Sherlock adaption on the horizon. <laughs> um, what do you think it is about Sherlock that has caught the imagination so much for so long at this point? Um, well, one of the things that I already mentioned is, you know, that I think there's all these inconsistencies in his nature throughout the stories, but that kind of lets you adapt him the way you want to, because you can pick and choose the aspects of him that, that you want to kind of put at the forefront. Um, I think that it's, I don't know, there's so much, there's so many reasons why it's hard to to kind of sum it up, but I think that um, the fact that he was one of the first, you know, serial episodic um, kind of protagonists that we get, um, Doyle kind of is is creating that in writing these stories. Um, I mean, he's he's really the format for police, the police procedural, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's part of the reason too. Um, I think that he comes at a time when there's a lot of different scientific revolutions that were going on at the time. You know, the use of diagnosis and medicine is getting translated into the legal system and and the use of forensics, which is taking off. Um, It's right at the beginning of criminology. Um, There's there's a lot of things that get wound up into it. For the social moment, like this was actually like a a period of, transition for like like the idea of a police force right and and how that would function uh and and sherlock holmes 
as one of the most popular characters in in entertainment um kind of also helped to embed and transform what the public's very conception of of justice was going to be uh even though he's operating outside of it he so often is is engaged with the police force and they're coming to him or he's going to them uh to to exchange information uh and for the late 1800s when this was being written i I, like i don't know the full history but i know in some of my readings about sherlock holmes it it mentions like the the very conception of what um you know the the idea of going to police to report a crime was actually a a more of a novelty (laughs) and sherlock holmes kind of made it help make it become commonplace right along with dickens right um Mm -hmm. dickens had a couple of different uh he has mr bucket in bleak house uh and he had or Inspector Bucket and in Bleak House, and a couple of um, f- articles that he wrote in um, oh, what was that publication? The Household something. Um, anyway, he he went on. He actually went into the slums with um, a detective and and wrote about it. And kind of yes, so there's there is a lot of that going on with Holmes. Um, although he he's often degrading the uh, police, um, especially Lestrade. He gets kind of a bad rap in some of the stories. So he has a very tumultuous relationship with the police. Sometimes he's helping or sometimes he's saying that, you know, they're doing the right thing. And then other times he's saying that he's so much smarter than they are because they missed all of these things. Well, also like I have at this point, I think I've read all of the short stories and I, I know I read one of the novels at one point, I think Hound of the Baskervilles, but I've listened to Stephen Fry's audiobook adaptation of all of the Sherlock Holmes stories um, on, on audible. They have Stephen Fry reading all four novels and all the short stories and you can get it with like one audible credit. It's one of my favorite purchases I've made on audible. And I've listened to that twice and Sherlock Holmes is something of an abusive mentor <laughs> to, to Watson, like the way he treats and talks about Watson. And like you said, the police, like his, his arrogance, it, it goes yes. beyond, uh, you know, just like self-confidence. It becomes, like you said, belittling uh, and, um, you know, impatient with, with everyone who he sees as, uh, you know, his, his inferior. And he lets them know <laughs> they're his inferior. Right. And I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with the idea of the Watson Holmes relationship, particularly with the, the logic of the Sherlock Holmes stories, where this is like Watson presenting these stories to the public. And he looks like, a right. Buffoon. We never have direct access to Sherlock Holmes. It's always filtered yeah, no, through Watson. Yeah. Yeah. None of these are presented as the raw Except e- for, events as they're happening. Um, I think his last bow or his last bow is um, actually written without Watson as a narrator. Is that, is that There's one line? story? Yeah, I think it is. I can't remember for sure, but, but yes, almost always Watson is, is the narrator. And I like how that gets, um, like, like I, I like the BBC version where they acknowledge that with his, his blogs, but even then we're still, mm-hmm. uh, like there's no frame saying this is now you're seeing their version. Like we're, we're told this is an objective reality that we're seeing through how it's shot and filmed. And then Watson is putting a different version out into their, into their world, into their universe. Um, some of the other um, adaptations, like I've listened to a bunch of the old radio shows, those were always presented as uh, Watson now sitting down to tell a story, you know, like Watson was going to be sharing the events. And so that keeps that kind of framing device uh, around it um, in a, in a way that 
other adaptations lose. But in, in most of the stories, there's like acknowledgement that this, you know, I, I looked through my records and now I'm going to tell you this story, <laughs> you know, or that sort of thing. Right. Um, if sometimes uh, to try and get a handle on what defines a character, we try and do the uh, the game of like what what ten adjectives would define this character, and often there are contradictions within those adjectives, and that's where some of the the great character work happens is where there are contradictions because you know people are complex. If you were going to try and list a few adjectives for Sherlock Holmes, uh, what what do you think should oh, be goodness. on the list? And we can go back and um, forth, like each throwing out one and, and uh, seeing what we end up with here. Sure. So, I mean, rational or scientific, I think, would have mm-hmm. to be pretty high up on the list. Yeah, I'm going to put out arrogant as arrogant. All right. Um, probably bohemian because of, you know, the drugs and um, some of the things, especially in, in some of the early novels that he yeah. says. Um, I'm gonna. I am gonna put unaware out there, and it's not unaware. just like the the social unawareness, which I think it's played up depending on what story you're reading or which adaptation you're seeing. So, like the BBC one really heightened his like lack of social grace, right? <laughs> lack, right. Lack of understanding. Absolutely. But even in like like in the stories, there's those moments where like he's surprised when Watson says the Earth rotates around the sun, right? And and he's like, there's well, definitely I, gaps I, in his knowledge for sure. Yeah, where he's, yeah. Where he's like, I don't care about that. Like that would not mm-hmm. affect my life in any way, whether that's true or but not. But yet he <laughs> he know, he can identify like every tobacco leaf. Mm-hmm. And he he's writing, so, yeah, yeah, he's writing his. Uh, oh, he doesn't he have like something about the his, the the study of footprints that he works on or something? There's a couple of those other ones where something, like, he, yeah, something yeah. like that, yeah, yeah. Um. I would say funny. I mean, this story in particular, I, I think there's a couple of moments where Holmes is actually pretty hilarious. Yeah, he enjoys like a, a bit of a wordplay in in the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and particularly there there's a kind of humor that I can't think of an example in this story, but I know there's some where like he makes a reference that doesn't become funny till like a, a reveal a little later in the story. And then you look back and you see, you know, that he was, he was being a little sly and how he described something or, uh, you know, he was setting up a joke that we, we as readers don't get the payoff till later. Right. Um, I'm going to say maybe, uh, maybe the word I want to use is like withholding. And again, it's, it's not so much in this particular blue carbuncle short story, but there's other stories where like he has more information, but he won't share it or. Yeah. Um, he, he definitely keeps his cards close at, at points oh, in some of the stories. And, and I, I, maybe I'm going to, I'm going to jump in. He's also, he has a, like a flair for the dramatic. What's the best way? Like he's, a, he's somewhat of a performer for Watson, right? Yeah. Yeah. Where it's not just like, I'm going to read the hat and I'm going to dazzle you. It's like, I know what's about to happen and I'm going to like, I'm going to set myself up to look really good in just a minute here. And I'm not going to let you know <laughs> what I'm doing. Right. Absolutely. I think there's that scene um, in how to the Baskervilles where he doesn't tell Watson that he's coming to out to the countryside. And then he like reveals that he's there. That's very dramatic, I think. And over the top, 
You know what I'm talking oh, yeah. about? Half of the Baskervilles for me is like the most abusive moments with, with Watson, <laughs> where he lets him out there and be terrified and thinks he's alone. And Watson like thinks he's getting some clues and he's like so proud of himself and writing Sherlock letters about all the clues he's had. And then like mm-hmm. he finds out Sherlock's been watching him from a distance and Sherlock like from a loop. Yeah, him, a- a loop. just trashes all his work. He's like, you know nothing. <laughs> Like from from a telescope, I can tell you everything you've figured out. And I'm going to now tell you 20 things more uh, about what's really going on here. Right. Yes. I would say um, I want to say street smart, but maybe maybe clever. Um, Because I'm thinking, you know, the use of the newspaper ad is very clever. You know, that's how he eliminates that that Henry Baker is responsible um, or in on, you know, the, the carbuncle theft and then um where he uses the he bets the uh what is his name windigate um mm-hmm. he bets him that it was a certain it was a country fed goose yeah this is the uh the guy who's upset about he says like i'm tired of people coming around asking about geese which is where the you alpha know, inn keeper the, right the landlord yeah. at the alpha inn. that yeah. someone else is, is he, looking around and he doesn't want to say anything about it to sherlock he's he like, doesn't want to give out anything and so again Sherlock, you know, does his his Sherlocking and and figures out that this guy would be susceptible if he bet him, he would give the information in a much easier way. Yeah, and, particularly um, if Sherlock so said that's that very Sherlock clever. was going to lose, but uh, so the guy would think he was winning the bet, but we as readers right. see that he he was playing him, and Sherlock Sherlock was the one with the upper hand the entire time. Right. Yeah, I like that. Um, I'm going to say that Sherlock is needy and 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 the way the neediness comes out is very different. But like he is not a man who could be uh, self-fulfilled by himself to, you know, just <laughs> he's, he's incapable of uh, like like uh, being alone with his own thoughts. So much, even, even as much as he like expresses disdain for everyone else, like he needs uh, adventure. He needs Watson. He needs drugs like he needs all these other things to kind of absolutely. Sustain. Yeah the the drugs come in when he's when he's in that low those lulls you know when he doesn't have a case or when watson's busy with his own life that's when he winds up turning to to drugs he can't stay by himself yeah i would agree with that all right well i think we've probably got a pretty good sketch of of sherlock as a character um do you have anything else that you want to add in about the blue carbuncle before we we kind of wrap you know put a bow on that discussion I think we've uh I think we've touched on most of the things. Um I have a couple of other things. The uh the story had um an alternate title at one point, The Christmas Goose That Swallowed a Diamond. See, I which... was gonna say Okay, I don't think that's a great title either, but I was gonna ask you It's a terrible title. Do you, do you think the adventure of the blue carbuncle is one reason why this one is not as popular? Because it is no Hound of the Baskervilles or the final solution, you know, uh, as far as like evocative titles go. I I do think there's something behind that. I mean, even a scandal in Bohemia, which is mm-hmm. arguably the, uh, the most popular one has like a very alluring title. Um, it, the adventure of the blue carbuncle is at least better than the Christmas goose that swallowed a diamond. I mean, there's absolutely no mystery at that point, you know, yes. uh, it kind of gives everything away. <laughs> um, so but yeah, I, is such an ugly sounding word. <laughs> it's not <laughs> like just the sounds true. of it are yeah. unpleasant, and it it doesn't really evoke anything for an audience. 
the way so many of the other titles do. Um, right. Yeah, sure. I, th- I think it's a bit of an outlier there. Um, and it's not... Uh, the crime is interesting in that it's not murder or um, a a big... Uh, oh, like a conspiracy. There's a couple conspiracy ones that Sherlock gets involved in, right? I read... Uh, or I, I went back through the stories. There's 15 stories involving theft. Um, one's identity fraud. One's a bank robbery. And they steal everything from a horse to submarine plans to treasure to a pearl. So there's actually a lot. And then there's a ton of kidnapping um, yes, stories. Kidnapping is a, it's surprisingly common in the Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Very common. Very common. The I, only like, other thing I think, I think I would add. Sorry. Well, I, was, I, was, I was just gonna say like, because of um, like CBS's elementary being a crime procedural set in New York city, the crime of the week was almost always murder. Um, and and so I, I and the a lot of the film adaptations focus on murder as as one of the crimes. So I, th- I think that's what a lot of the association we have now culturally with Sherlock Holmes is. Uh, but the short the, the short stories are a, a much more mixed, you know, set of of, uh, you know, what form the villainy takes. Yes, absolutely. Trying to think, like there's the the redheaded league, which is just this weird conspiracy to steal from a bank, right? Right. And and things like that. There's uh, a lot yeah, of blackmail. Bit... Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's it's just uh, it's kind of interesting, and I love this idea of how like our, our on the one hand, there's there's tons of overlap and similarity of our larger cultural conception of Sherlock Holmes and these original. Arthur Conan Doyle stories but where you get those divergences for me is always really interesting like where like I said like with the the CBS one we kind of associate Sherlock Holmes with solving murders now I I think or um you know those kinds of things where the the adaptation has become more dominant because a lot for a lot of us we don't go back and read the short stories right (laughs) um and and when there's new movies coming out with Robert Downey Jr or or, you know a weekly tv show set in it or you know the new BBC's miniseries like that's where we get to consume a lot of our our modern Sherlock did you have anything else you were going to touch on besides the alternate title which I'm fascinated by I love alternate titles um the only other thing is uh the fact that the blue carbuncle um was found in the banks of the Amoy River in the southern in southern China. Um, one of my dissertation chapters is about the kind of intersection between Sherlock Holmes and China or Chinese characters. Um, there's actually no Chinese characters in all of Doyle's stories, but there are key moments where China is mentioned, um, which is actually kind of fascinating. And then. Joan Watson, obviously, by Lucy Liu, um, American Chinese. You know, she plays the female Watson. Um, and then we've got the episode in Sherlock of The Blind Banker is contains a bunch of Chinese characters. So that's one element of the research. Um, China is also a place that Holmes visits um, during his quote-unquote uh, 
oh, I forgot, great hiatus is what they call yes. it. The the time when he was, you know, dead, but not really dead. Um, he travels throughout the East and China is one of the places he goes. So it's used throughout the canon or the Doyle canon to um, evoke kind of the mysterious and the exotic. Um, and there's actually a really complex history behind England at the time and in China, which is the Opium Wars. Um, so it's kind of interesting that it pops up here, even though it's always these brief allusions to it. Um, it plays kind of an integral role and, and it, it plays a more prominent role as we adapt it into the 21st century. So. Yeah, we didn't mention this in the trivia, but, uh, Arthur Condola got so sick of writing Sherlock Holmes that he killed him off and meant it to be permanent and from what i've read like the people were like dressing in mourning in london when when sherlock holmes is killed off uh but then as you know financial demands and publisher demands come about at first uh arthur conan doyle said well fine here's some adventures set in the past like before moriarty killed sherlock uh but then it became all right we're just gonna really bring him back and tell brand new stories moving forward uh he didn't really die with moriarty any final thoughts, Brittany? Uh, do you think Sherlock Holmes let him go because he's such a bad thief? <laughs> well, uh, he's he's 0 for 1, right, in, in attempting it. And he messed it up pretty badly in terms of successfully stealing a priceless jewel. Um, and what made him mess up wasn't that he had a bad plan, because he actually... That he and his accomplice the plan wasn't terrible. Had a, had a pretty good plan and it worked. The guy they set up and framed was arrested and from all accounts that we get in this short story was going to take the fall. Uh, but he got so nervous that he tried stuffing the jewel into a goose <laughs> and then lost the goose. <laughs> and uh, uh, and that's a that's a pretty spectacular failure as a criminal. So yeah, I think that may be one reason. Like if this was a master thief that had you know dogged Sherlock you know for for weeks, you know like they, they were circling each other, and it was a game of chess. Right. I I you know we know from other stories Sherlock Holmes is willing to grab that guy and th- go over a waterfall to take him out of society. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but but this guy is kind of like yeah whatever just just don't do it again. <laughs> so is it another off. instance of his aloofness? Holmes's aloof kind of you're just beneath me, so I'll let you go. Uh yeah, or well, and also this might still be some of his arrogance. But like, if you ever try anything again, I will catch you without even trying. <laughs> true, this is, true. This is yeah. not a challenge for me. Though, uh, so, well, and again, not because of his his planning ability he has that he just is so incapable of being a criminal that sherlock holmes has no concerns because he gets so nervous that he just makes stupid decision after stupid decision right all right well thank you Brittany, for joining us now you are a first-time guest and because our podcast is about great characters and great stories we always ask our first-time guests the dinner guest question if you could hang out with any three to five fictional characters for a dinner party, just to sit back and enjoy the conversation, who would you want to hang out with? You know, this is a really, really tough question. Um, but, and I'm going to seem a little geeky by my answers, but I think I would have to say Doctor Who, the Highlander. Yeah, which which one? <sighs> which one? Um, Tenet, definitely. 
David Tennant's Doctor Who. What is he, the 11th, I think? I'm going to allow that because I don't know off the top of my head. <laughs> I should. We've talked about Doctor Who on this. I've seen lots of Doctor Who, but I, I, there, there, there's too much good entertainment to be fans of that I, I have not been able to commit to memorizing all the lore of Doctor Who. I think he's the tenth or eleventh. I can't remember off the top of my head, but but Is Doctor it? Who, yeah. um, the Highlander from the the television series, okay, um, Desmond from Assassin's Creed, the video games, Doctor Strange. No, I I've never played. You don't Assassin's know the Assassin's Creed. Creed so what games? makes Desmond interesting? Just real quick. Okay, so Doctor Strange and then Claire Fraser from the Outlander books. Um, okay. Basically, all of these people have a strange relationship with time. I was gonna say. So uh, that's why. Right so I I could not pick three to five characters unless I had some sort of like overall kind of framework. So I'm thinking we're gonna have a really good discussion about about time and history. So and. I'm, I'm like I'm running through the ones I'm most familiar with. Uh, they all are going to think their point of view is the only one that matters. <laughs> Correct. Yes, but Desmond in Assassin's Creed is able to play the memories of his um, relatives that have passed. So he he's able to like go back and experience experience like Renaissance Florence through one of his ancestors. Okay, so that's how that one. That one works. I've like yes. I said, I'm, I'm I know Assassin's Creed is very popular. I just have never played it. So yeah, and, you, the, and, it, there's you know, a company I, I that missed, that lets you kind of do an augmented reality. The the movie was all right, but the games Assassin's, Assassin's Creed Three is is probably my favorite, and that's the one with the Renaissance time period. Okay. All right. Uh, well, thank you again for coming on and sharing Thanks your for having PhD me. Yeah. level expertise in Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> um, we've been uh, another character I've been wanting to talk about is the elementary version of Moriarty. So maybe we'll have you on again in the future to talk about. Um, There's a lot to say about Moriarty. Yes, which. Uh, Worth noting, both Irene Adler and Moriarty, who every adaptation of Sherlock Holmes really likes to center an awful lot, they are not very present in the Arthur Conan Doyle stories. No, they're they're absolutely not. But they're a huge part of the the lore kind of surrounding Holmes. So, yeah, it's just it's just interesting to me again. Like what, uh, like if, as if is you Mycroft had only consumed? Oh yeah, Mycroft too. Yeah, if you only consume Mycroft, only shows up in a couple. So. You would assume Mycroft and Irene Adler and Moriarty are are constant presences in Sherlock Holmes's mm-hmm. life, and in the the sixty Arthur Conan Doyle stories, there's like one that features Moriarty, and then he gets referenced a couple other times, but really not significantly. And Irene Adler is only the one, right? Mm-hmm. The Scandal in Bohemia. That's I think she gets appearance. mentioned in a later mentioned. story in passing, yeah. and Mycroft is occasionally yeah. here and there, um, shows up, but. Not terribly prominent uh, figures, uh, and uh, I just love—I love pop culture and the way things ebb and flow, and like what becomes part of our our cultural mythology, like you said, of of these. And and in this case, like we have the ur text of Sherlock Holmes. It's not like King Arthur, where it's like who knows where King Arthur started. You know, we we don't really know how this all came about, but we know where Sherlock Holmes started. We know how it originated, and yet we see so many fascinating transformations across um, all these adaptations. 
uh, definitely worth digging into. I'm glad you did that for your dissertation. Makes me want to <laughs> want to know more about your work there. All right. Well, thank you, listeners. That's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to go check out episode number 39, when we talked about murders in the Rue Morgue and uh, the, the Edgar Allan Poe story that predates Sherlock Holmes, but shares an awful lot of overlap uh, with Sherlock Holmes. Uh, or you might want to go check out episode number uh, 32, when we talked about Bones, uh, one of our you know more recent TV series that also shares many uh, elements with, with Sherlock Holmes. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Is Minute, and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Let's oh, wait, mine just, it just came back to life. It's back. Okay, we will try <laughs> just, to ensure that everything... And I see all the waveforms from our conversations where, okay. like, Brittany popped in. Feels good? You're saying something. All the waveforms are going by now, so I think we're good. <laughs>